All right, you guys, you can grab a seat and open those Bibles up to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. And what are the blessings of justification? The blessings of justification. Uh, Tim Keller wrote in his commentary, justification makes a difference. Not only to where we are heading, but to how we act and feel in our present. In both good times, and more surprisingly and wonderfully, in bad. Man, here's a guy that knew something about it. He recently passed away this year uh, from cancer, uh, Tim Keller. And I used him quite a bit this week. Martin Luther, the great reformer, commented, In the whole Bible, there's hardly another chapter which can equal this triumphant text. And I feel like we just went through a verse like that. It was like Charles Hodge or someone that was like, this is it. This is like the most powerful verse with the gospel in the whole Bible, you know? And it's just funny. You kind of go, and uh, I was talking to Ira right before worship during this set. And he's like, it's just everything seems so fresh. Every time we read through it, this is it. This is like, this is the verse, you know? And it's like, no, this is, oh man. And it's like, boy, we love them all, don't we? But man, to have Martin Luther say, this is, there's hardly another chapter in the Bible that equals this triumphant text. So we're going to look at six blessings that come from justification. And the first is that we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Therefore, verse one, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you're new to Calvary Chapel and you're just getting here and already I've thrown out some big words, justified is one of those words. And um, I remember there was a period where we would joke around with each other about Christianese, you know, that like as Christians, we kind of have the languages that we use and we use these words that we are very familiar with, but people on the outside maybe aren't too familiar with. It's like, you know, I feel like I'm have a bunch of, like I'm a teenager talking to a bunch of boomers right now or something, you know, that teenagers have their language these days. And I was like, I don't know if we had our language. I think I'm, um, I'm kind of like generation X. I'm on, I'm in between X and Y kind of, as I've looked it up quite a few times to make my point. But, um, but now they've got, I actually looked it up at the dinner table, the new urban dictionary of all the words that the kids are using. And so during dinner, I was like, so, you know, and I, there's all these words that I don't have, no, you know, but a couple of them are sus and bus, you know, or whatever. And there's this, Hey, is it sus or is it bus? And I try to use that with my kids like, Oh, this lasagna tonight. Is it sus or is it bus? And you know, and they're like, you are like the intelligence meter is way down on that. It's like, you're the one that are making up these crazy words. We had rad, you know, radical tubular, which really was more the shape of, you know, but tubular, uh, but you know, we have great vocabulary as Christians like justified, justified, a legal term that speaks of our uh, legal standing before God because of Jesus Christ. That if we believe in Jesus and what he's done, it's just as if I'd never sinned. I'm justified, right? And so we are justified by faith. Now, as you look at verse one, there's that word therefore, which if you've, if you've taken kind of a basic school of ministry style hermeneutics class, hermeneutics is the art and science of interpreting the Bible. One thing that they teach you is that context is king. 
Okay, so there's a lot of strange interpretations of things out there. Peter tells us that there's no scripture of private interpretation. So there's not just like, oh, well, you interpret it your way, I interpret it my way. It's like, no, there's actually like rules of literature for how to know how God has revealed himself to us. And one of those big rules is context is king. And so when you see a therefore, you have to ask yourself, what's it? Therefore, right? And typically that will give you 20-20 vision. You're looking at at least 20 verses before and 20 verses after to kind of get. And then in Romans case, we go from one run-on sentence with a therefore or a now or a for or, or something or anything likewise. These are all connecting words that keep kicking you back, kicking you back, kicking you back. You're going to end up at chapter one, verse one, if, if you're really faithful to that this morning. And my studying, I went back and looked at chapter three, and I just had these connecting therefores about how we are not saved by works of the law, but we're saved by the grace of God. And when we put our faith in Jesus, in most commentaries that I read this week, they just made it simple on us. And so I'm going to do that. And we're just going to go back to the previous two verses. They're the last two verses of Romans chapter four. Where, and forgive me because I don't think it's on the screen, but I'm going to go to verse 23 where it says, Now it was not written for Abraham's sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us that it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was raised up because of our offenses, uh, I'm sorry, delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So the whole context as we look at chapter four was that Abraham and David, they are both these examples of our forefathers who were not declared righteous before God because they did some incredible task. It wasn't some redeeming quality of their life or their morality that saved them. It was because they saw that God who is so awesome and they are so nothing that that awesome God has made promises to them and he has such power and such faithfulness that he is worthy to be trusted. And so I trust in him no matter what he says. And because of that great trust in God, they were declared justified uh, before the Lord. David writes of the very happy heart a man has um, who's been justified by the grace of God. And so we read in those last verses of Romans chapter four that anyone who believes in Jesus also gets to be a part of that great faith of Abraham as we believe in Jesus who was delivered up because of our sins, but also was raised uh, because of and for our justification so that we can have that state before the father just as if I had never sinned. And so here are some of the results of justification by faith. Number one is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. It's peace speaking of freedom from worry and to have a quietness of heart. But even more than that, it's peace it's kind of like the V-Day in a great war. You know, you remember hearing of VE Day, victory in Europe, when uh, Hitler uh, was dead and just the Third Reich would crumbled and there was peace uh, there in Berlin. There was peace in Europe. And, you know, the ticker tape parade in New York and the sailor, you know, giving the lady the kiss, you know, as he, you know, does that big smooch there, that famous picture in New York or VJ day, a number of months later, a uh, victory in Japan or in the Asian theater. And what a relief it was to the soldiers and to their families that 
We will not have to invade mainland Japan, which would uh, result in millions of more deaths. Such a relief that our country experienced, you know, back in the 1940s for these great V days. And the day that a sinner comes to Jesus and puts his trust in the Lord for forgiveness of sins, that's not based on my works of righteousness, because uh, I could never major, uh, measure up, uh, but it's works on the based on the righteous works of Jesus, the day that we put our trust in that is the day that we have a big uh, V-day in our heart, a big victory day in our heart where there's peace, there's no longer opposition, we're no longer at war with God. Uh, I have uh, a number of people in my home group who actually, um, kind of within the last year or two, have um, come out of the Jehovah's Witness religion and have studied the Bible and read the Bible and saw that that they have been following a false gospel, one based upon works and merits, um, not based upon the, the grace of God through Jesus, God himself dying on the cross for us. And they have experienced forgiveness of sin. And one of the ladies in our home group this week, she was just sharing kind of her testimony. She, she said, one of the greatest things that I would say has changed in my life since I've become a Christian is I have peace. Finally have peace, you know? And there is peace in our hearts when we have peace uh, with the Lord Jesus. Uh, Before there can be peace and access to God, there must be something done about the wrath of God uh, that he has that burns towards sin and towards sinners. And we're going to see that Jesus has remedied that by his blood as we look through the rest of this text. Here's a few verses I want to just lob at you because they're so wonderful concerning the peace of God. Isaiah 32, 17, the work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. So no wonder there's great peace as we're justified because that's a work of righteousness. A work of righteousness will be peace. John 16, 33, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you that in me you ha- may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And we're going to see that tribulation and that affliction that is really the lot in life of any person living on the earth. Uh, we're going to see that in just a minute, but there's just a great overarching comfort from Jesus that is, hey, in this world, it's going to be rough, but be of good cheer. I'm with you. You're going to have peace. Isaiah 53 is a great Messiah prophecy that uh, many Jews have come to Jesus by examining. And Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So often with great uh, sin and error and rebellion comes great consequences, right? Um, I just, whenever I think of the word consequences, I think of little Ruthie um, Barney, you know, and uh, how she'll be running around the church and stuff, and we're playing with her one day, running around the foyer of the church, and she looks up at Johnny and says, you better be careful, there will be consequences, you know, and it's just like, yeah, you better be careful when you go out and sin, because uh, there will be consequences, right, and there will be correction, and there will be oftentimes wounds that have to come to redeem some error that we've done, but Isaiah has this great prophecy that um, the chastisement, the wounds that were to come for our peace, 
they were upon him. Jesus took those upon himself. And then this great phrase, by his stripes, we are healed. By those wounds, we have healing. So our peace was secured because of the wounds of Jesus. And finally, Ephesians uh, 2.14, Jesus himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Such a stellar verse in that we were at war with God. There was a great wall between us or a great chasm that uh, separated us from his presence, from relationship with him. And Jesus is our peace. He came, he um, brought reconciliation. He brought two warring parties together of God, the father and his creation who were in rebellion. He made those two parties one And in that process, he broke down the middle wall of separation. Uh, Charles Hodge got a quote for you here from him concerning justification by grace through faith. It is peculiarly an evangelical doctrine that pious affections are the fruit of this reconciliation to God and not the cause of it. Paul says this peace is the result of justification by faith. He who relies on his works for justification can have no peace. He can neither remove the displeasure of God nor quiet the apprehension of punishment. Peace is not the result of mere gratuitous forgiveness, but of justification of a reconciliation founded upon atonement. The enlightened conscience is never satisfied until it sees that God can be just in justifying the ungodly. That sin has been punished. The justice of God is satisfied. His law honored and vindicated. You know, it's like this crazy courtroom drama that we've never seen in the natural world where, uh, you know, where someone who has committed a heinous crime, somehow his attorney stands up in the courtroom and pays the penalty himself for his client's misdeeds and misconduct. And that the judge would say, You innocent attorney, the cost and the price that you've paid satisfies all the legal requirements. And so I'm going to slam my gavel down and declare the one sitting behind you. I can't even see the guy because I'm looking through the attorney, but that guy back there, he is an innocent. And, and then the gavel slams down and the courtroom applauds, you know, and the, you know, the guy gets his shackles undone and he gets to take off the orange jumpsuit and he gets to walk out the front door and the press is there. And, you know, everyone's just rejoicing and they're just like, what happened? Like, I don't know. The attorney stood up in my place and, and paid the price for my misdeeds. And, and that in a sense is what has happened in the gospel. It's never been seen before. And it's, it's a, it's a peculiar to the gospel of Jesus, where Jesus, who is the mediator between God and man, has offered up himself. And the Father, who is the great judge, uh, says, that is more than sufficient to satisfy my wrath towards sin and the legal requirements towards sinners and also mercy that I want to show because I'm a merciful judge as well. And so we have peace with God is the first blessing of justification. The second blessing is we stand in grace. We stand in grace through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so we have access by faith through uh, Jesus. He 
brings us near. He introduces us as part of the idea to some sort of a dignitary or some sort of a famous person or some sort of a king where we have access into the royal chambers to spend time with this king. We have a right to be there now. And ever since I was about 16 years old, 17 years old, it was right after that youth camp that I was telling you guys about. (coughs) I started reading the book of Romans and I remember coming to Romans chapter five and reading this verse. And in my 16 year old brain, (coughs) excuse me, you guys, this is, it's been a week long battle. with something that wants to live in my lungs. It wants out. <laughs> I want it out. Front row's in a very dangerous spot right now because it might just get out. Uh, since I was a little kid, I, since I was 16, 17, I read this and I read about this access that comes through Jesus where I can stand in grace. And I just, of course, I'm thinking like what I've seen of all access backstage passes. I didn't know much of those things, but I've heard of them. And I thought of my favorite music artists, you know, and how I've always wanted to meet them. I think at the time I was a big delirious fan, you know, and oh my goodness, Martin Smith and from London with this great British accent and the incredible music that he plays and the way that he sings. And if I could just go to a delirious concert and go backstage and he'll surely like me, we'll become best friends and, uh, and I'll just get to hang out with him forever, you know? And, uh, in a sense, I was like, that is what the Lord has given us through Jesus Christ is we have, you know, the golden ticket like Charlie and the chocolate factory. And we get to go in, we get to have this backstage, all access pass. And it says into this grace in which we stand, we don't have to be like someone that's, you know, showing a picture from going backstage at an REM concert where he says, Hey, that's me in the corner. You know, it's REM joke. That's me in the corner. Okay. Uh, that's me over there. Right. Uh, losing my religion. Okay. We don't have to be all shy and hiding in the corner and, Oh my goodness. It's, you know, uh, Oh, it's, it's Garth. You know, he would never want to be around me. He would never want to see me. What am I doing back here? I don't belong back here. You know, instead by the grace of God, we get to stand and have stability in the presence of the greatest dignitary, uh, that has ever lived. One guy wrote, my friend and I were backstage with the band U2 and two other people. And I said, Hey, look, I'm here with U2, U2 and U2, you know, and in a sense, we have this type of access and with one another, with U2, we all will get to be together backstage in the presence, in the throne room of the most glorious dignitary, uh, this great song, you are the Lord, the famous one. And we will get to be with the most famous one of all the famous ones that have ever existed. Uh, in Christ, Keller says we are ushered into the royal throne room and we stand and remain there. Wherever we go in the world, we're always in the heavenly throne room. John Stott said the Greek word here, stand, has a certain touch of formality about it. Although it's uncertain whether the imagery is of a person being brought into God's sanctuary to worship or into a king's audience chamber to be presented to him. So by the grace of God, there's a blessing of justification, of access and standing in the presence of the king. It's been said the only person who dares wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is the child of the king. We get to have that type of relationship where we get to wake him up in the middle of the night for the glass of water, you know, and to bring our cares before him. 
Mike Bird was quoted in the gospel-centered commentary on Romans. It's a grace that means we always have a VIP pass into the hallways of heavenly power. Hodge says the state into which the believer is introduced to Christ is not a precarious one. He has not only firm ground on which to stand, but he has strength divinely imparted to enable him to keep his foothold. There's something about this text that almost every book I read this week kept referencing the assurance that Christians have of staying steadfast to the end, that it's a grace of God in us to keep us until the very end, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And there's this great grace in justification that gives us a strong foothold to keep standing stable. Now, Jesus spoke of Satan in John chapter eight, where he said that Satan stood not in the truth and he did not remain steadfast therein. So we won't be like the angels that followed after Satan did not remaining steadfast, but we'll be like the faithful one, Jesus. He is our King. He's our crown. He's our motivation and our motivator will stand faithfully as he is. It's part of the blessings of justification. Third blessing, three out of six. How you guys doing? All right. Not quite halfway there, but second half of verse two says that we, it's a blessing is that we boast in our hope in the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So to hope means to want something maybe without total certainty. Oh, I hope that this or that happens. But this Greek word underlying it here means to have a conviction. Christian hope is not just a hopeful wish. It's a hope filled certainty. And our vision of future glory is a uh, it's a powerful stimulus to present duty. Hebrews 3, 6 says, but Christ is as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And so we have this hope that we get to have confidence in and cling to, holding to it uh, firm all the way to the end. Now, my Bible, as we move on in the text, verses three through eight, it had a heading that called this next section, faith's triumph in trouble, faith's triumph in trouble. Uh, and it leads us to our fourth blessing of justification that we glory in suffering. This is verses three through eight, where it says, and not only that, and so he's kind of building up these blessings of justifications, right? And it's like, oh, we have peace with God. Number one, number two, we have access into this grace in which we stand VIP, all access backstage pass into the presence of the Lord. Awesome. Uh, what was the last one? We boast in our hope in the glory of God. Awesome. And then you have this phrase and not only that, which is very Bob Barker from prices, right? Ish, you know, almost like he's got Paul, like whips out his really long microphone with a really tiny end on it, you know, and, and he's a game show host that says, and you think that all of that is great. Check out this great prize over here behind door number, you know, and as he opens it up, it says, we also glory and rejoice in all of our suffering. And most Christians go, wait, there's still suffering. I'm in the wrong religion line, you know, like, Yes, there's still suffering, but it's different now in that you'll never go through it alone and you'll always be having something worked out in you 
through that suffering. It's something that we can glory in. As it says, we glory in tribulation here. It's a, it's a word that speaks of afflictions and distress and oppressing troubles and being pressed together and pressure. You know, Paul is talking about these kinds of times in our life where there's affliction and trouble and persecution and anguish and burdening. This is all still part of the Christian life on this side of eternity. We're kind of, we're living in the kingdom of God, but there's this tension that theologians have called the already, but not yet of the kingdom of God. There's so much that we're living in right now. That's totally kingdom of God stuff. You know, reconciliation to God, salvation, hope of eternity, never being alone. He does heal. He does work miracles. He does do wonderful things. He does provide. There's great kingdom things that happen now. We're teaching the Lord's prayer to our children. And part of that prayer is your kingdom come, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, it's here. It's happening. There's things that are happening. Every one of you in this room can attest to that. If you tasted of his grace and then there's this not yet part and, and also what will be, what will come. We look forward to that even in the midst of suffering that happens as we're still waiting for a kingdom come. Sandy Adams is a, a friend of mine. He pastors at Calvary Stone Mountain in Georgia. He's just been known um, for just being hilarious and witty. And I think I preach a lot of uh, the same way I learned from Sandy um, as well, but so many resources that he has and books that he's written. And, and he writes that at times God squeezes us. He engineers pressure packed situations to break us and shape us. And it's vital when you are squeezed, don't try to escape. And during the COVID stuff, uh, his son, Zach got COVID really bad and almost died. And we were really praying for him. He said, through my son's recent battle with COVID, I reminded myself never to waste a crisis. You might write that down. Never waste a crisis. If God puts on the squeeze, let him do the molding he desires. So whatever tribulation, affliction, pressure, pain that you're going through right now, don't waste the crisis. Our God is the God who can work in the midst of the pain and the suffering to refine us and to bring something precious out of it. You know, the, the Psalm says the crucibles for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. The Lord tests the hearts. It's that picture of putting a, a, a bunch of gold that you just dug out of the ground into the furnace and letting that crucible melt down that gold until the impurities float to the top and those impurities can be skimmed off and you've got that pure gold bar so valuable. And that's what each one of us goes through as we go through these difficult trials. Uh, he's turning up the heat. He's putting on the squeeze. He's removing the impurities and he's making us even more precious and tried and true uh, vessels of his. And, you know, I know in my own testimony that I wouldn't be the person that I am today had I not gone through those trials and been refined and been pressured. We're, we're going to see even more of this as we go through uh, the text today, but because it goes on to say, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. So why would we, we rejoice in the affliction and the pain and in the anguish? Well, we know 
that that anguish, tribulation, makes something. It forms something. It brings something. And the King James, New King James says that that is perseverance. Maybe your Bible says endurance or a patient endurance is what those hard times bring. It's kind of like when you go to the gym and you lift weights and you just feel so sore after you just did those curls or after you did those squats, you feel so sore and you know that it's because as you were doing that lifting, there was tearing that were going on in your muscles and then it had to rebuild. But in that rebuilding process, it made you stronger uh, and it grew that muscle. Uh, this word here, perseverance or endurance is a word that really means single-mindedness, which shows the idea that suffering makes us focus. It helps us focus on what's really important. Going back to this muscle metaphor, you know, it's interesting. Uh, been a little out of it for a couple of weeks, but a lot, a lot of times I'll go work out with Chris at the gym and Chris loves chest day, chesties day, we call it, you know, and those are the days he really shines, you know, he just busts out the big, the big dumbbells for those presses and he needs me to help him get him over to the bench and I have to roll him <laughs> bringing him I'm bringing him but you know so we'll do chest and when I do it I'm like okay he taught me how to like throw him back you know and start going I'm like <laughs> you know and he's like just throw him down and I'll throw him down on the ground you know but Chris before he does his set of the big boys the whole gym stops and turns and watches <laughs> but you see, Chris hates this because he's the most modest guy about his strength. But he sits there with these massive, I'm not even going to tell you what they are, but they're triple digits. Okay. On his legs, they only have hundreds there. So I'm not going to tell you what they are though, but they're on his legs and he closes his eyes and he takes a little while and he gets mentally focused. And a lot of times I'm like, how do you do it? How do you do it? He's like, first of all, I just, I just kind of make up my mind that I'm not going to let this weight beat me. And so he's just very mentally strong, but he focuses and he just, and then he just goes for it and he just busts those things out. And it just shows like in that picture of suffering and endurance, it's a focused endurance. It's going to hurt. It's going to cause the tearing. It's going to bring the strength, but it creates a focus that if you were never sitting there with the hundos on your knee, you know, you never have to take that time to really think about how to isolate. We're doing chest right now. I need to have the right form. I need to bring it up and we're going to 10. We're not getting beat with these in this, in the set, you know? And so, uh, these, these times of suffering, they produce this good perseverance in us or patient endurance. And then I like, it's kind of like a ladder or a chain here where it says tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance brings something too. Verse four says perseverance brings character and character hope. So perseverance and all of that endurance, it brings character. Uh, my mom likes to call me a character when I mess her. Oh, you're such a character. And where does that, all that character come from? It comes through time of suffering. The language, if you look it up in the Greek characters means examination. Like you, you've gone through the examination and you have a proven character. Okay. Uh, it's a mature character. John Stott had said in his commentary, like the temper of a veteran, um, as opposed to that of a raw recruit. 
And it's just like, you guys know, in anything that you guys do, you got the guy that's been there forever doing that job or that task. And it's just clear. This guy has proven experience in the field that we're talking about. You look into their eyes, you can see that they've seen things, you know, they've got that salty demeanor to them, you know, and it's like, I don't want to mess with this guy uh, when it comes to this um, task that we're talking about, because they know what they're talking about. They've got that proven character. A couple translations, the LEB says that patient endurance or proven character, proven character brings hope. New Living Translation says, uh, and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Uh, this is a word that really means testedness when we speak of character, a quality or a confidence that comes from having been through the experience. Whenever I think of this, my mind goes to, I think it's night of the museum with Ben Stiller and there's like, you know, these security guards or whatever. And somehow he gets up into this other security guards face and he's like shining a light in his face. And he says, I've seen things, you know, and the other security guards like, like what kind of things, you know? And he's like, just stuff. Okay. You know? And it's just like, you're with people that you look at them and they're like, I've seen some things. And you're like, Ooh, I can tell by the grit in your grin, you know, that you have seriously experienced and gone through the testingness or King James version. You've gone through the experience character, um, perseverance brings experience and trustiness is another word that's used there. Uh, God uses these pressing, trying times to build character that couldn't be developed in any other way. If it weren't through the medical news that I got or, you know, the schism with a friend or the team that's rising up against me or the, the huge losses that I've experienced or the fight that I've recently had with my spouse or, you know, the, the child that's backslidden and wayward right now, if it hadn't been through these tough and trying, then I never would have woken up in the middle of the night sweating and, and with anxiety and gone to my knees by my bed to pray. Normally I don't do that, but when I'm in the midst of the suffering, I'm there on my knees. I've never fasted until I went through that difficulty or sometimes it's involuntary fasting. Have you ever been to those, through those things in life where you just don't eat, you know, and it's like, man, but I've been in prayer and if it hadn't been through these things that I, man, it wouldn't have brought me, I wouldn't be back in church today if it wouldn't have been through the trial. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have dug into the scripture like I have if I hadn't been through that uh, testing period of time. And so our tribulations and our anguish bring um, endurance and bring tried um, behavior, testedness, right? Um, it's kind of like when I grew up, I really liked the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. And Calvin and Hobbes are walking along and Calvin gets a bloody nose and uh, Hobbes says, it's okay, it builds character. And then Calvin says, well, all my character is coming out my nose, you know? And it's like, it sure is easy to say, right, on the side of eternity that all of this stuff builds character. Uh, it's like James that says in 1, 2, and 3, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And this is such a great and such an encouraging voice. Count it all joy, rejoice and be full of cheer when you go through all the different various trials that you fall into, right? Just in the language speaks of that. I just fell into this rough and tumbled period in my life. 
And, you know, you want to be careful when you bust this verse out as someone is suffering, you know, you as a great, you know, uh, pastor or friend or at the ER, you know, when the ambulance rolls in and your buddy rolls out on a gurney with the neck brace on and stuff, all battered, battered and bruised, and you like to bust out James 1, 2, and 3, like, count it all joy, man! Like, I know that your car is totaled and, you know, all these horrible things, like, you kind of have to have tact in all of it, you know, hey, you got character coming out your nose, I see, you know, like, throw that one in there, you know. Um, but, uh, but it is true though, that ultimately though, it is good to have that spoken into us in the midst of it. Like, ah, he's doing something, working something out through this. If suffering leads to glory in the end, it leads to maturity in the meantime, working some maturity in us. Corey Tin Boom likened life to a big tapestry. I don't know if you've ever seen the backside of a tapestry. Front side, it's just beautiful work of art. Backside of a tapestry, it's just a hodgepodge of those ends on the other side, and it doesn't really look too pretty, and it's not really pleasant to look at. And Corey Tin Boom, who of course is famous for having gone through the Holocaust, her family was hiding Jews during World War II, and uh, her sister died, her uh, parents died, and uh, she would just be such a great pillar of faith through the midst of those trials. And she is speaking from experience that life, a lot of times all you see are the rough edges and what doesn't seem to be put together. But on the side of eternity and looking back, you're able to look at, oh my goodness, what a beautiful work of art the Lord was bringing in through all of this. Alan Redpath wrote in the blessings out of the buffering, he wrote this, the Lord Jesus watches Because he allows the pressure to continue in order that the severest hour of testing, it may drive you to his wounded side and teach you that for overwhelming pressure, there's adequate grace. How great that he can drive us to his wounded side in the midst of the trials and teach us that for all the pressure that you're going through, there's so much great grace. I think Alistair Begg was the one that I heard say that our God is not a God who's sitting on a deck chair somewhere, sipping on a lemonade, you know, just kind of getting a kick out of all the suffering that's going on in this world. He's a God that has partaken of the human condition. He has come here. And the book of Hebrews tells us that as a man, he became like us uh, as a man so that he could... Uh, experience all that we've gone through and he's able to be a sympathetic high priest for us because he's experienced it. He was tempted and tested in all points that we are yet without sin. And because of that, not only is he a faithful high priest who knows how to pray for us, but he also is a willing help that comes to us in our time of need. Oswald Chambers put it as a, a quote. It's one of my favorites. God's past faithfulness demands my present trust in him. So whenever we're going through these hard and difficult times, we can look back and say, man, I remember, you know, I remember in my youth moving off of our family ranch where there was such security and it was just a life living on this. What to me was an empire, just a giant spread out empire that our family ran and then moving into town and living in this little house while my dad went back to school and being the new kid in school. And I can look back and say, but the Lord was faithful to use that in my life in those 13 moves before I graduated high school to make me a bit of a character and a person that learns to make friendships. I understood that a friend must himself be friendly. I've got to go out of my way and 
and be relational to people and to keep those relationships as we move on. And as a kid to watch my hero, my dad get Hodgkin's disease and go through the years of suffering through chemotherapy, radiation, bone marrow transplant, moving to Stanford to get that treatment, moving three times that year to live with aunts and uncles while mom and dad were gone so that I could, you know, um, uh, live with my aunt and uncle and to see God's faithfulness in that period of my life and to get the news from the doctor that in spite of all the treatments, your dad's going to die. And there were some six times in my life where I remember having a family meeting and the family meetings always meant the cancer was back. And I remember running to the bed and diving into the pillow and wailing into the pillow just to know that dad's this cancer wasn't gone and that he could die until eventually they said he's going to die. And then I remember as a seventh grader that mom and dad went, you know, the Baptist church that we went to said that God doesn't heal. So go get ready to die. I'm not putting that on every Baptist church. That's just the one that we were going to. And then my mom's friend who was a Pentecostal was like, Oh honey, you got to come to our church. And then my dad got slain in the spirit. And I don't believe in that, that that's like a practice that we should do. But somehow God used this hyper Pentecostal church. And my dad was healed of cancer that day. And as a seven year, a seventh grader to witness all the pain and anguish and the moving and being separated from my family and all of these things. And to see that God healed. I remember as a middle schooler who wasn't even really walking with the Lord personally, that if the Lord can get us through this stuff, he can get me through anything. His past faithfulness demands our present trust. And I remember when I first moved here and as a pastor, you go through all kinds of hard and difficult, just things that you just think this is the end. This is how the church implodes. This is it. We're done. You know? Um, and I just remember one of my first ones was a very influential person in the community coming to me, calling a meeting and saying, I don't think that you should be the pastor here. I don't think that you're called to be here. You should go back to being a youth pastor. And we need to like bring in an independent study to see what is going on here. And it's just not right. And this and that. And I just was like, all I know is I didn't ask to be brought here. You know, I was sent out from many faithful men of God who examined the character and the, and the integrity in my life and the equipping that God had given me. And by grace, God's given me that. And they saw these, um, giftings and callings and they sent me out and I was also brought and I was placed here by the grace of God. And I've just got to walk in, you know, this isn't going to be the first or the last time that you wonder if this guy's even, you know, fit to stand up on a stage, you know, but that, you know, the callings and, and, um, equippings of God are irrevocable, you know? And so we're going to just walk in that. And I just remember wrestling through hearing this and thinking through these things and, um, looking out my back window of my house and there was Barnes Butte, a uh, great mountain of Prineville. Right. And I just remember the Lord saying, we have a great view of Barnes Butte. And he said, Hey, Rory, how long do you think Barnes Butte has been here? I was like, I don't know, like Pangea, something around, you know, I don't know what was happening, you know, the flood. I don't know. My geologist, Lord, I don't know, you know. He's like, just this Barnes Butte has been here a long time. And I have a picture of a wagon train coming through Prineville, and the guy's letting his horses drink out of the Crooked River, and behind him is Barnes Butte. So I knew it's been here since the cowboy days, you know. And uh, I'm like, so it's been here a while, and he's like, yeah, how long do you think it's going to be here after you're gone? Well, it's going to be here a little while. Barnes Butte has seen some things. And he says, that's me, Rory. 
Like, just put your hope in me. I'm a solid rock. I'm a firm foundation. I can be trusted in. And just that word from the Lord that I can just always run to him and he will never move. I may move. I may falter. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like, oh yeah. And so like, I am just a man and we are just people and we may ebb and flow and wave and wander. And we just by God's grace, he'll bring us back to him who is that solid, solid rock. These trials that we go through, we can just look at God's past faithfulness. It demands our present trust. Someone once said, trials will either make you bitter or better. So don't, don't be a bitter Betsy when it comes to your trials. Tim Keller said, people who do not process their sufferings through the gospel of grace can become proud and superior or deeply cynical. Christians look through the suffering to their certainties. They rest in the knowledge that troubles will only increase their enjoyment and apprehension of those certainties. And so when we look to what Jesus has done, we realize that suffering does not have the final word. Look at verse five. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's given to us. So um, we have hope and it's not blind hope. It's not blind faith. We have the Holy Spirit given to us. And and uh, and this is really the first mention of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. And one of the roles that he has in pouring out the love of God on our hearts as one, I think it was John Stott that said, under the vivid metaphor of a cloudburst on a parched countryside. That's how the Lord just dumps and rains down uh, grace on us. I was thinking about the football game the other night. I went to my first uh, Cowboys football game here in town. I think it was the first one ever. And uh, I was looking on my phone and it said, oh, it's supposed to rain between seven and eight. And I'm like, okay, I'll bring the raincoat, you know, and I'm getting out of the car and, and it just is pleasant and warm and great. And I'm like, gosh, I, maybe it was somewhere else, you know, and leave my raincoat in the car, you know, and go and watch a quarter or something. And then uh, then it just unleashed the beast, you know, and uh, just the rain just came pouring down and you can see it in the stadium lights, just shooting down. And Ted was the uh, referee there at the football game. And he, I was like, don't they give the referees a rain slicker or something? You know, those poor guys just saturated and just, it's pouring down. And it's just a picture of just boom, the Holy Spirit just pouring out, raining down and saturating us with the love of God. Here's a early Puritan, Richard Sibbs, how he writes about the Holy Spirit's work. Here's a paraphrase of it. Sometimes our spirits cannot stand in trials. Therefore, sometimes the immediate testimony of the spirit is necessary. It comes saying, I am thy salvation. And our hearts are stirred up and comforted with joy inexpressible. This joy hath degrees. Sometimes it's so clear and strong that we question nothing. Other times doubts come in soon. William Guthrie, another Puritan wrote, it is no audible voice, but it's a ray of glory filling the soul with life, love, and liberty. It's like the word to Daniel that said, oh man, greatly beloved, or like the word to Mary Magdalene on the first Easter Sunday morning, the Lord only said her name, Mary, and filled her soul so she no longer doubted she was his. Oh, how glorious is this manifestation of the spirit. And so looking at verse six, for when we were still without strength, 
In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So when did Christ die for the ungodly? Well, we were in a state of without strength. And that doesn't just mean like, oh, I, you know, I hadn't been working out and I was a little bit weak and puny. It speaks of our spiritual strength, which shows that we were morally weak. We were sick or sickos. We were ill and we were unable. And in due time or at just the right time, Christ came and died for the ungodly. This is one of my favorite Christmas phrases that's also found in Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. It's just a great Christmas passage because you start thinking about, was it, you know, does it matter when Jesus came born of a virgin born in Bethlehem? And the New Testament tells us it was the perfect time. It was at the crescendo of human history. All of the Old Testament had been accomplished that showed the promises and that the law and that we could never fulfill the law and that even the most religious person on the most religious day still needed a savior. The prophets would come and we'd murder the prophets. It just showed the depravity of our heart. There's 400 years of silence where no prophet speaks and then boom, one day in Bethlehem, the angels just bust out in heavenly chorus and speak of the Savior who would be born. It was at just the right time in human history, even looking at where Rome was at and the roads going throughout the world, and that the gospel that was going to be spread within the next 30 to 70 years was going to be able to spread out through on those highways. It was at the right time, and at just the right time, God sent his son. And he died for the ungodly. What a beautiful phrase. If you're honest with yourself, you know that you are lumped into that sum of people. The ungodly is who Christ died for. Jesus said that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick need the physician. And that's us. When we were without strength, we needed the great physician, Jesus Christ, who died for the ungodly. Now that leads us into these great next two verses. So we know that Christ died for the ungodly. And then verse seven says, hey, scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. So it speaks of like, it's kind of rare that you see people just go out of their way and go out on a limb and just lay their life down for just a someone that seems pretty innocent, you know, like it happens. And we as Americans, we kind of love that about our, you know, man, just people that go out and they, they lay down their life, right? For our freedom. We love that. That's still a rarity. It's kind of a rare thing that anyone will go do that. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. It's a difficult thing. It's kind of rare. Uh, and this is maybe even for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Like maybe that would happen. It's kind of rare that someone would die for an okay guy. It's even more, I mean, maybe, maybe someone would die for like a generous, benevolent person. Like, you know, I owe it to them to lay my life down right now for them. But verse eight tells us, but God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It just shows the love of God. Yes, God would have died for the innocent, uh, anytime you name the place, uh, God would have died for, uh, the benevolent person anytime, any place. Uh, but those were few and far between hard to find. He actually went and he laid his life down for the, the sinner. 
the person that didn't deserve it, the person that wasn't innocent, the person that was quite wretched. And as we think about Israel and as we listen to commentaries right now, we want to be very careful as we're just lobbing out a bunch of, they're behaving like animals, let them die like animals, lest we forget ourselves and our own sin and people who are actually made in the image of God. Okay, there's a there's big theology behind all of this. So we want to be cautious in our praying, in our hoping, and even in our even in our action. Okay? But God established and demonstrated or maybe even proved his love toward us. You ever wonder if God loves you? Think of his love that he showed at the cross in dying for his enemy. Once a little boy was asked to donate blood for his sick sister, he didn't understand the procedure, wasn't sure how much blood was coming out or how soon it would return. So when the needle was removed from his arm, the little guy said to the nurse, all right, tell me, when am I going to croak? You know, and, uh, and you know, he was willing to lay his life down for his sister. He didn't know you don't actually have, you're not dying to save your, you know, you're We'll get it back in a couple hours. Drink some orange juice, you know. Uh, but Jesus, knowing, like, I am going to be separated from my Father. If there's any other way than the cross, let this cut pass. I'm going to go to the cross for those people who hated me. And he willingly bore that cross and laid down his life. Um, and so here is this single action which completely proves his love towards us. Okay, um, moving on, looking at verse 9, we're coming to five out of six of the blessings that come through justification. And number five is, we shall be saved through his grace. Uh, we shall be saved through Christ. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So there's this great past that we've been saved and justified by the blood of Jesus. And there's the great hope of the future that we're also going to be saved from future wrath. He was able to save us while we were hostile to him. And uh, and now, how could he fail us now that we're friends who've been reconciled to him? Uh, his blood brings freedom and salvation from the wrath to come. And we learned about the wrath of God in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That there is currently wrath poured out on the world and all of the depravity that we see right now, that's justice of God taking place. But there's also future wrath that is harbored up uh, like water pressing against a dam that will be poured out. We know that we'll see that during the great tribulation period in the book of Revelation you read about it. It's the time of Jacob's sorrows, uh, the time where God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. And by the way, I believe that as Christians, as 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come and that God has not appointed us to wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, but to obtain salvation for the Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't believe that Christians have a place in that wrath, that time of tribulation. That's my eschatology that I've come to from much study. But you know, the world right now, they hate the idea of hell. They want a gospel without sin. Stop talking to me about sin. It's really uncomfortable. Um, we don't call people sinners. That's just not nice. Okay. Uh, don't talk to me about the blood of Jesus. Ooh, that's gross. I want redemption without blood. And I don't talk about judgment. That's judging. Nobody likes that. We're so fragile, right? Bunch of snowflakes in the world today. And I want a judgment without hell. Okay. Many people hate the ideas of sin, blood, hell. 
And I would just say, if you don't want hell and you don't want men to go to hell, then as this verse tells us, be justified by the blood of Jesus and be freed from the wrath to come. And if you really think you care about the world out there and you don't want people to go to hell, then you have a job and you better lace up your boots, friends, because it's getting out of this room and it's going out there and it's open up your mouth and it's telling people about the grace of the Lord Jesus, that there's salvation from the wrath to come. How much do you really not want people to go to hell? Have you been preaching the gospel to them lately? That is the only way. Acts chapter four says, for there is salvation found in no other way, but the name of Jesus. And so the opposite of verses nine B is also true. Those who are not justified by his blood will not be saved from wrath because they are not in him. So I'm so thankful that God has delivered us from the wrath to come. There was a speaker at a conference who said, I'm such a believer in a pre-trib rapture that I don't even eat post toasties, right? And uh, eschatology joke, hilarious every time, right? Um, so if you're a post-tribber, then you believe that the church is going to go through a period of wrath. And I understand where you're coming from with that. I personally believe that we will be raptured up and, uh, and saved from that as the bride of Christ. The wrath is not upon us. And then verse 10, moving on. For when, we, there's only 11 verses. So if you're wondering, light at end of tunnel, I wonder. Yes, light at end of tunnel. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by this, uh, by his life. So again, it's this argument from the lesser to the greater. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled, how much more, uh, because of the death of his son, how much more now that we're friends, shall we be saved? And you can just write in your notes that we are just continually seeing assurance for the Christian that now that we are reconciled and we are friends, we have the hope of forever with him. We will be saved uh, by his life. And the last thing, the sixth thing, it's in verse 11. We boast in God. It's a blessing of justification. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So we got Bob Barker back with his long skinny microphone with the little end, and he's still showing us the great prizes that we've just won. And you, you guys have watched the show, right? You know, where it's like, you can hear his voice, a new car. And everyone's like, woo, of course it's a Dodge Neon, which wouldn't have been my first choice. And I got to pay taxes on it, you know. And then it's like, also, that's not all a trip to Hawaii. And it's like, Lahaina, you know, I'm just kidding. You don't want to go to Lahaina right now. Um, the only Lahaina joke you'll ever be with the Lahaina Lord. Um, so, you know, but there's these great just prizes and blessings. And the final prize is, we get to boast in God. We have such rejoicing and cheer. And it's been said, it was Keller that said, joy is the great marker of the justified person. Man, if you are a Christian walking around with the big thunder cloud over your head, like, man, may the Lord open up your eyes to see the blessings that come through being justified by grace. This joy is unique to Christianity because it not does not depend on your circumstances or your performance. As the worship team comes up, just learned so much from Keller this week. As actually, I think I was reading him at 11 o'clock last night. And he had these great six signs that you're rejoicing in God. 
because of the gospel. Let me just read them to you. Whoa, look how tiny that is. Whoa, you guys can follow that, right? Oh my goodness. Okay. Number one, signs that you're rejoicing. Your mind is deeply satisfied with the doctrine of justification by faith. You rejoice in it by studying it and speaking about it to others. Are you there? Have you done it? Study the justification by faith doctrine. Tell people about it. Okay. Number two, you only think of your past in terms of it. You don't say what a mess I made on it there. Instead, you say me, a Christian, despite my deep flaws, despite my record, yet it is absolutely true. Number three, when you discover in yourself some surprising new character flaw a fearfulness or a lack of self-control, etc., the discovery does not make you doubt God's love. Rather, it makes you feel closer to him and his grace for you. For you becomes more, huh? I might've accidentally messed up. Thank you. And his, <laughs> and his grace for you becomes more precious in your sight. This is what you get with only a Lakeview high school graduation diploma. Number four, when your conscience accuses you and says, how could God love you after what you've done? You don't try to answer with reference to your performance. In other words, you don't say I had a bad day or I was under pressure. You say something like, even if I hadn't done this thing, that would not have made me acceptable in God's sight anyway. Jesus died for me and his blood can cover 1,000 worlds filled with people 1,000 times worse than me. Five, when you face criticism, you don't say, this is totally unfair. You rejoice gently inside with thoughts like, well, I'm really a much worse sinner than they know, but well may the accuser roar of sins that I've done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. It's an old hymn. And then the final thing, just a sign that you're rejoicing in God. When you face death, you do it with serenity because you are going to a friend. Will you guys stand with me? And Lord, in all of these things, Lord, it just comes flowing out of your wonderful grace. Lord, anyone that has come into this sanctuary today and they thought that they were justified because of what they have or have not done. Good days. I never murdered anybody. I never killed anybody. There's hoping at the end of their life that the good things they've done will outweigh the bad. Lord, that's just so sad. They're just lying to themselves and they're letting Satan lie to them that that's even the way that it would be done. Lord, that today they would just see the grace of God towards sinners. That even the people that we love in our military or the heroes that we adore, they would, they would die for the right person on the right day. But Jesus, you came and you died for the worst person on the right day. And Lord, that they would just receive what you've done and they would receive the blessings of having that gavel slammed down in heaven as the attorney has stood up in their place. They would receive forgiveness of all the sins that they've ever done or even yet to do. That right now there would be just a a moment in their heart where they would say to you, have mercy on me, God, I'm a sinner. Let these blessings that Rory spoke of flow out from your throne into my life. And let me have the assurance, the hope 
that you who died for me as a sinner will certainly carry me through now that I'm your friend. We will give you glory. Lord, let that be the hope in us who have put our faith in you. We have that same hope. Lord, let us step out from under the thunder cloud of bitterness in the midst of suffering and saying, why me? And Lord, may we walk into the shining rays of the sun in all of your grace and all your goodness and all of your faithfulness, no matter what our circumstances, you'll always be there with us. You'll see us through and you're having a perfect work happen in us. We give you glory in Jesus name. Amen. Let's close.